like to say y'all because I'm from Michigan and we don't say that up there. So we say you guys. So every time I get a chance to say y'all, I try to say it. Um, all right, so we're going to be, we're in Genesis chapter 6 today. And uh, my, again, my name is Todd and my wife, Lindy, and three kids, we're all here and members at the Church of the Well. And uh, I speak periodically, so I'm going to jump into uh, Genesis 6. I get to talk about sorrow and judgment. Yay. All right. If this is your first time to the well, welcome. <laughs> you get to learn about sorrow and judgment today. Um, no, but I actually am kind of excited to teach on this. I've, Tori kind of gave us options to teach, and I saw this, and I was like, oh, I really would like to think more about that personally and be able to teach on it. And, uh, but I wanted to say one thing about Genesis before I get into this. I don't know where you all are coming from in your background of your faith, but for me, I came from a non-Christian background, and I became a believer in Jesus before I knew a whole lot about even what the Bible said. And when I went back and I started to read the Bible in the Old, in the Old Testament in Genesis, I was blown away. I was like, no, no, like... This is some weird made-up story. Or is this, and I just, I wrestled deeply with it. Like, is this real? Is this mythology? Is this history? And I think we can go back and read these stories and, because they're so different than what our culture teaches us about what the history of the world is, where we came from, why we're here. This is a very different thinking. We are not in a biblical-minded culture and I don't know if you feel the same way sometimes when you read through this, going through it, and you think, well, is this really, did this really happen? Is this really history? Are these just stories? Well, I just want to say you're normal to feel that and think that. It is normal to think that because of our culture. We, at least for me, I was not raised to think or believe or even understand these stories. So it took me a while to kind of dig into them, to grow in a conviction, and I have come to a conviction that I believe that these stories are history. And I believe that what we're going to read today, this morning, of the account of the Great Flood is history, and it really happened. And there's a number of reasons why I believe that. I'm not going to go into all those reasons, but I would encourage you that there are reasons to believe it, and it's not just because the Bible says it. There is interesting geology that uh, indicates major catastrophe happened all over the world. There are flood stories, over 200, 250. 70, I think, from cultures all around the world that tell of a great flood that happened in the world. And uh, some are very remarkably similar to this account uh, when you look into them and study them. Jesus himself talked about the flood as though it was real, as though it was history. So I'm like, okay, Jesus was a smart dude, smarter than I am. If he taught as it was history, I think I can... Uh, believe it uh, because of what he was thinking and teaching as well. Um, so I'm coming at it from that perspective, but I understand there may be, you may be wrestling with it and coming at it from different perspectives. I just wanted to share that before I jumped in uh, with you all. So I want to pray and then we'll get into it. Um, uh, Lord, we just want to come to you and ask you to teach us and ask you to help us understand the, the word that we're going to read today and the passage uh, that we're going to read, uh, help us to um, help us to hear from you, and help us to understand you better, and help us to understand what it means to live in light of the re of this truth that we're going to read, and of who you are, and of uh, the coming reality of your judgment in the world as well. 
Help us to understand it and help us to live in light of that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me, first before I get into Genesis 6 and 7, it's actually a lot I'm going to read for you, but I want to I just back up very briefly and see where we've come from because we started in Genesis 1, which was the creation. God created everything and it was good. It was very good. And he made, it, he made man in his image. It was kind of the pinnacle of God's creation. And he, God was, we were made in his image and likeness to reflect the glory of God on the earth and to have dominion over the earth in a good way, to govern it as God would govern and to multiply on the earth so that God's glory would spread across the face of the earth through mankind. And we know that that was God's purpose and his plan and his vision and it was beautiful and it was good. And yet shortly into it, there was the, the disobedience of Adam and Eve and the fall of man. And so shortly into it in chapter 2, what happens? Man disobeys God. Shame comes into the world. Fear comes into the world. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with ourself is broken. Our relationship with one another is broken. They hide, they blame, and they are cast out of the Garden of Eden where God was. And there's a curse that comes on the earth because of that. And then right after that, we start to see that this starts to, starts to unravel, right? Uh, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. There's the first murder. And then we see the lineages of Cain and then Seth, because God gives Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And Tori talked about it last week. It was very good. And you see these two lineages. You have the lineage of Cain, which are, is the lineage of a man who was cursed and driven away from the presence of God. And in his lineage, you see increasing violence happening on the earth. You see polygamy and other problems that are beginning to occur on the earth. And then you see Seth's line, which is a different lineage, and this lineage is uh, a lineage where people began to seek the Lord in his time. Uh, it actually says in that passage that Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, and then Seth was made in the image of likeness of Adam. So if Adam was kind of like a son of God, you see some of God's image still being passed on more clearly through Seth's line rather than through Cain's line. And in Seth's line, uh, there was Enoch. And he walked with God. There was Noah, which we'll read about. He walked with God. So there was this a more of a godly lineage. And then there's an ungodly lineage, uh, Cain's lineage. When we get to Noah, we have to realize that if we go by the lineage, we're about 1,500 years since Adam was created. So the flood is going to come about 1,600 years after but Noah and beginning of Noah's story is around 1,500 years. So in this period of time, the people are multiplying. They live a very long time. Uh, it talked about them living 900, 800 years. You can get into a lot of trouble if you live that long. Um, and you can have lots of kids if you live that long. So imagine the multiplication that's occurring. Right? The earth is, would be populating very quickly, and um, there could be a lot of problems that are happening as well as we see um, for what we've read so far. So Genesis 6, we're not very long into Genesis, and now we're going to see these problems that are um, multiplying and are increasing over the earth, and it's going to bring God's judgment. Let's just start off in, in chapter 6. We'll start with verse 1. Um, I'm going to give an interpretation to this verse. There are a couple different interpretations to this section, and I'll tell you both of them, and I'll tell you what I think. So in verse 1, it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, right? This is that 1,500 years. And the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And if we just skip down to verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. All right, this is the situation, the scenario of what is, is happening on earth. It has become corrupt. It is filled with violence. There is wickedness. It is great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of man is evil, even from his childhood. And God sees this and he's deeply grieved. So what is exactly happening? There's some different ideas about what's happening. One idea is that there's the lineage of Seth and there's the lineage of Cain. And these two lineages begin to intermarry. This would make sense from what we had just read. The daughters of man would be representing the uh, lineage of Cain, uh, that they were living in a worldly way. And then there were the sons of God who would represent the lineage of Seth that were more following God's way. And they began to intermarry. And through that intermarrying, this lineage that God, this godliness became diluted and it, it actually mixed together and wickedness began to increase and you're going to increase and violence began to increase and increase and increase. And so much so that God says, man is not going to live long anymore. They're not going to live for 800, 900 years. They're only going to live for 120 years, but they're, they're causing too many problems for living that long. And so we see that slowly, from this point on, on, that mankind will not live as long until you get to about 120 years will be the lifespan of a person. Uh, Moses wrote this Genesis. He lived 120 years. Some think that maybe it was 120 years before God was going to bring the flood, so he was giving them a little bit of a grace period too when he told this to them. So it's not quite sure exactly, but it's probably one of those two, maybe both of those, of what this verse, that verse means. And then it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And Nephilim, some translate as giants, but it's also more accurately tra translated as like fallen ones. It says they were on the earth, and um, it says they were, the, they were the mighty men of old, men of renown. This is a very weird thing, the Nephilim. What are the Nephilim? All these people have questions. You go on YouTube and look up Nephilim, and you'll find up all kinds of wild stuff. Some of you have done that. What are these Nephilim? What are these giants? Well, there's different interpretations. One interpretation is that the sons of God were actually not the lineage of Seth, but they were some, some uh, demonic uh, entities or spiritual fallen, fallen angels that actually somehow married men and had these strange offspring called the Nephilim. And that there are these weird, twisted, violent, giant people, and then God flooded the earth because they were on the earth. And that is a, a thought that some people have. Uh, I tend to think the other way. I tend to think that actually it's the two lineages that were intermarrying and these people got the name Nephilim, fallen ones, because they were ruthless, wicked people and they were brutal people. And we see later, actually, in the book of Numbers, 
in Numbers 13, when um, Israelites are going into the promised land, it says they saw the Nephilim there. It's interesting. These people that this was before the flood and they were supposed to be wiped out, but now we're after the flood and there's Nephilim there again. It says they were the sons of Anak, Anak who come from the Nephilim. It's, and they said that they saw themselves to be like grasshoppers in their, in their eyes. They saw themselves to be little compared to these great people at that time called the Nephilim. So my thought, and other people would affirm this, is that these people gained that title because they were mighty, mighty warriors and ruthless people. And the, and the Israelites were afraid to go into that land and these people got the name of Nephilim again because that history was, people knew the history of them from long ago. And they weren't giant trees, people. You guys who laugh because you saw the movie Noah. Remember the giant tree creatures in the movie Noah? Those were supposed to be the Nephilim. That's not what these people were, okay? Don't go by that movie to get your biblical theology and understanding, please. Right? But they were some type of people that were very ruthless and they were mighty people and God saw that this, there was wickedness that was growing on the earth and we then see the heart of God in, these, in this passage. We see that God is, is, is greatly grieved by what is happening on earth. We see the heart of God here in a unique way where it says he is sorry that he has made man and he is grieved to his heart and what is happening. You know, God has made this beautiful grace in Genesis chapter 1. We see the beauty of it and the glory of it. And then now the, the earth is, is filled with violence and these people who are made in the image of God are now killing the image of God. They're slaughtering one another. They're fighting against one another. Immorality is taking root amongst God's creation and it breaks the heart of God. It breaks the heart of God. And sometimes we can read this and get caught on, well, what do you mean God's sorry? Or he, some versions say he regrets that he made man. Doesn't God know everything? How would he make people and then feel bad that he made them because he knew what was going to happen anyways in the first place? But I think what this is trying to really capture for us is just to see in the heart of God and that our sin, it actually affects God. The scripture says that our sin can grieve the Holy Spirit. Even God knows when he makes us, he knows we're going to do things that aren't right, but he doesn't mean he sits back and is like, oh, you know, I kind of knew they were going to do it, so no big deal. When we do these things, they still grieve the heart of God. They still break the heart of God because God loves what's right, and he loves what's good, and he loves what's pure, and when I, his creation is not walking in that, it brings him sorrow. And so much so here that he's so sorrowful that he said, I wish I never even made them. It's a deep expression of emotion. I was out a couple weeks ago and we were sharing our faith with people in the neighborhood and we met a woman who just, when we got to speak with her and pray for her, she began to just tell all these troubles in her life. I mean, she just began to pour out all these burdens and how troubled her life was and how broken her life was and she was so grieved and so troubled. She said, you know, it may have been better for me never to even have children. Did she really wish she never had children? I don't think so. But I think what she's expressing is a deep hurt and a deep grief in her soul for the state of her family and her life. And this is what God is expressing here, a deep grief for the state of humanity, his creation. And so he is the creator, he's going to judge it. And he's going to preserve a line, which is Noah's line, because it says in verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. 
And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Noah finds favor in God's eyes. You know, this is the first time in the Bible that the word grace is used. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Was Noah just such a righteous guy that he deserved to be saved? No, that's not what this is getting at. This is getting at that Noah was a man who had faith. He believed God, and we'll see that he goes on to obey God. He would be, he's going to be the first person in the, in, the, in the Genesis, the book of the Bible, that actually obeys God's commands. Adam disobeyed, but Noah is a different guy. He has faith, and he's going to obey what God commands him. And God, in a sense, credits him righteousness for that. He gives him grace and is going to save him, not because of Noah's great righteousness, but because of God's favor and his grace in his life. Just like God saves any one of us, not because of our righteousness, but because of, of his grace through faith, through our faith. And we will look at this later uh, in, the, in the series that we're doing, but when we get to Abraham in chapter 15, it says Abraham believed God and God credited him righteousness because of his faith. And so the same thing is happening with Noah. God is giving him righteousness. He's seeing him as righteous because of his faith in God. And he gives him grace. He's going to preserve this family. I mean, for the sake of humanity at large, for God is going to save humanity at large, but he's going to do it through this family. He's going to preserve this line. There is still some form of faith and godliness in this man, Noah. And he's going to preserve this family for the sake of what's coming in the future which is going to be the lineage of the Savior of the world, which is going to come through Noah's children. So I want to read the rest of this. It's going to be a long read here, and I'm just going to read through it. And, um, and then I'm going to comment on a, on, on a number of things. So I don't think I have it all on the screen. So you're going to have to listen or you can follow along in your Bible. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you are to make it. A length of, of the ark is 300 cubits, which is about 500 feet. Its breadth is about 50 cubits, which is around 75 feet, and its height is 30 cubits, which is about 50 feet. This is a very big um, ark. I think I have a picture of it. This is a reconstruction of it, a life-size reconstruction of it. Uh, it's a big boat. <laughs> this was before modern tools. You know. He says, make a roof on the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks, three floors. And behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Remember, we remember back just a few chapters. If you eat the fruit of this tree, you shall surely die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing on of the flesh, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive." 
Also, with you, every sort of food that is eaten to store it up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. The first person in the Bible to do exactly as God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, and I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals. So not just two by two, but seven pairs of clean animals. We'll see this next week. This has to do with sacrifices that they will make uh, as, as thank offerings at the end of the flood. The male and his mate and the pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of birds of the heaven also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. He was five hundred years old when he had his three children. It was a hundred years later. And likely he was working on this ark for about 100 years. And Noah and his son and his wife and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, of the birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of the life of Noah, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, very specific, on that day, all the founds of the great deep burst forth and the heavens were opened up and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. We'll stop there. This is a serious, big deal, right? As soon as we have our, in our minds or this, this image of Noah and the ark, animals going in two by two, two by two, right? We sing these stories to our kids. 
or, 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 or show them these stories. But the reality, the reality is, is that this is like a, a scream core death metal song that should be sung. This is death and destruction and annihilation of the entirety of the human race, the entirety of the face of the earth, everything that God made. He blots it totally out. He's going to restart. He's going to recreate his creation from the beginning. He's going to start it all over again. And he's going to do it through Noah and the families that are with Noah. He judges his creation. This is a judgment of God. When we read through the scriptures, you'll get a sense that God is good, God is gracious, God is loving, but God is also righteous, God is also just, and God is also a judge. And that he is going to judge the earth because he is a righteous and a good and a just being that is going to bring judgment onto every human being in light of his justice. It says in Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. Indignation is righteous anger. Every day God sees the wickedness and the injustice on the earth and it brings him indignation. He says, if a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. This is God of the Bible. God hates sin. God hates violence. Psalm 15, 5 said that God hates violence. He hates it when his image is being killed. He hates these things that we hate too. And we, in some ways, we, we, we don't like the fact that God is judged. And another, on another side, we, we know that justice and judgment is good and right and necessary and needed in our world. Right? We we wrestle with this in our being because we look at the world and we say there's so much brokenness, there's so much wickedness, it's wrong, it's not right, something needs to happen, something needs to be changed, something, justice needs to be done. And some people even uh, take on the name social justice warriors because they, they know that something is wrong and something needs to be made right in our world. And so why do we get so amped up about politics? Because we think this person or that person, they're going to make the laws that are going to make things right because we need things to be made right. And wrong things should stop. And we have this inside of our being because we're made in the image of a moral and a just God. And we look around the world and we hate injustice. And when it's done to us, we hate it. Someone offends us, they transgress against us, we go, oh, they should pay. And we're apt to want to repay them for the thing that they've done to us because we know it's been unjust and they should pay. And so we have to hold ourselves back because it's not right. But we know it's wrong for injustice to happen. And yet the funny thing is about us is that this is true to us, but at the same time, when we stand before God exposed, we go, no, we don't like to gotta be a judge because we don't want to be judged. We want to point our fingers, everyone else should be judged, but when it comes to us, we go, oh no, God's loving and gracious and good and he's kind. We go, I don't like this righteous justice judge God when it comes to me, but I like to be the righteous justice judge God in the world. But God is good and he's merciful and he's kind, but he is righteous and he's just and he is a judge. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I think it's up here. 
so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All will stand before Christ. We will all stand before the judge. judge God is going to judge every human being. Hebrews 9.27 says, For just as, appointed, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This is not indicating we are going to go through multiple cycles of reincarnation. And hopefully we'll get it right one of these times. This is indicating that we will die one time and then we will stand before the throne, the king of kings, the judge of judges, and we will be judged on that day. Matthew, Jesus' words, Matthew 12, verse 36 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Oh, that one bothers me. Every careless word you speak, every word you speak, every thought you think, every action you do, you will be given account before God, the creator of heaven and earth. On that day, you will do what many have done in the Bible. When anyone is encountered with God, they fall on their face as though they are dead because their life is exposed, their heart is exposed before God and he sees all and he's in all of our ugliness and all of our wickedness and all of our selfishness is exposed and we fall on our faces though we're dead because he is so pure and he's so holy. And on that day, one of two things will happen to you. One of two things will happen to every human being. He will look at you and he will say, away from me, I never knew you. And you will be cast out from the presence of God just like Cain was cast out from the presence of God into the wilderness, you will be cast out from the presence of God into utter darkness for all of eternity where there's unquenchable fire. And the scripture calls it hell and Jesus talked a lot about it. Or Jesus will pick you up. He'll say, don't be afraid. My judgment fell on my son. His death covers your sins and you are now clothed with my righteousness come into my kingdom for all of eternity my good and faithful servant one of those two things are going to happen we will pay for our sin for all of eternity or Jesus will pay for your sin for all of eternity it's only one of those two things no one's going to stand before God and say I'm so righteous God I've lived such a righteous and good life that I deserve to be in your kingdom forever He's going to say, no, you haven't. But I have provided a way for you to be into my kingdom. Just like he provided a way for Noah to get through the judgment. But there's one other kind of judgment coming to our world. There's another judgment. There's that judgment where every one of us are going to stand before God and we're going to give an account. But there's another judgment. And God says that there's going to be a judgment across the face of the earth. And that it's not going to be by water. But the next judgment is going to be by fire. And that the reality of the word of God says that the future of mankind is fire. That everything on the earth is going to be burnt up. Your houses, your bank accounts, everything that exists is going to be burnt up by fire. And he's going to destroy the world again. This is what the word of God says. And I know we don't even like to think about it. And I know it's even hard to even imagine it. But that's what it says. And I wonder sometimes, I wonder, God, you know, last time you brought the flood and you brought the, the, the destruction. I wonder if this time you're going to allow us to destroy ourselves. I wonder if this time your judgment is going to be mankind destroying itself through fire. You know, when a nuclear explosion hits the ground, it's as hot as the center of the sun. 
it annihilates everything in its presence instantly. It burns everything up. Do you know there's 17,300 nuclear weapons in the world today? 17,300. And they're pointed all over the place, all over the world. And you know why there's peace in the world right now? It's not because we've evolved and we're so great people. It's because there's 17,300 nuclear warheads in the world. And no one wants to do anything that's going to rock the boat too much. Because we know when one gets shot, it's going to be annihilation. Maybe that's how the world will be destroyed. Maybe not. Maybe it'll be another way. But what we do know is that judgment is going to come onto this earth. That is what the future holds. But God in his goodness has provided a way of salvation. Just like he brought an ark for Noah, Noah, build this ark and get in this ark. And I'm making a promise to you. I'm making a covenant with you that I'm going to preserve you and your family. When the judgment comes, you will be saved and you will enter into a new earth that's going to be completely barren, but it's going to be recreated through you and all the animals. It's going to be renewed. He also has provided a way for our world to be saved from the coming judgment. From the coming judgment that when you stand before God or the coming judgment of fire on the earth, there's a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He came and he died for our sins, for the sins of the whole world. He came to die for the entirety of our sins and to take the wrath of God on him so that we could be set free and we could be forgiven and we could be given righteousness that we don't deserve. Just like Noah was given favor, we could be given favor. And just like Noah, he had to believe God and he had to obey God. We have to believe it too and we have to obey the word as well. Jesus is the word of God. So we have to hear the word of God. It says Jesus and we have to obey him. And if we obey him, God promises us we will be saved from judgment. John 5, uh, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the promise of God's new ark. He has provided an ark, and the ark is Jesus. And Jesus says, anyone who hears my word and believes in that word, and the one who sent me will not go into judgment, but will pass from death into life. We will be given forgiveness, and we will be saved by Christ. As much as it's hard to talk about, um, the fact of the matter is is that judgment's coming to our world and we're all going to be judged. And so we have to ask, how should we we respond in light of this? I think Noah gives us the answer. Noah was a man who believed God and he obeyed God against all other odds and against all other facts, and against all other, uh, against the reality that was at his time. For 100 years, probably around 100 years, Noah is building an ark, right? You think people thought he was in his right mind? They didn't. You think people scoffed at him and laughed at him and made fun of him? I'm sure they did. Right? We imagine this, this expanse of land where there's no lake or no ocean and there's this guy just building this boat, just building this boat, day after day, building this boat. Year after year, building this boat. Year after year, building this boat. And people laugh, oh no, you're a fool. You're such a fool for building that boat. But he says, no, God's going to judge the earth. I'm building my boat. God's going to judge the earth. And he builds his boat and he builds his boat and he does it day in and day out, day in and day out, day in and day out. 
year after year after year after year after year. He doesn't waver. He lives by faith, not by sight. He keeps doing what God calls him to do. Even though we can't see it yet, he keeps living by faith, believing that the promise is going to come. And he says that he was a herald of righteousness too. He says that he was a proclaimer of righteousness. So he was probably proclaiming, preaching at the same time. God is righteous. Judgment's going to come. Repent, turn to him. Year after year after year after year. And so men and women, we live in the same time. We live in the same time. Judgment's going to come. And God's given us a task. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, he's given you a task to walk with him and to tell the world that judgment's going to come and that they can be saved. And people are going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you're out of your mind. They're going to think you're crazy. People think you're, we're crazy. I say, I believe this as history. Oh, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. You believe that judgment is coming. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. You believe that a virgin was conceived, uh, you know, by immaculate conception. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. And they're going to laugh and they're going to scoff. But God's Jesus says, I want to save as many as I can. Tell them all. Judgment's coming, but there's salvation. Judgment's coming, but there's salvation. Judgment's coming, but there's a way to be saved. There's a way to be saved. And God has made the way. Let's remark here 1615. He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, the good news. Why is it good news? Because it's salvation from judgment to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Jesus says, go and share this message with as many people as you can so that they can come into the ark, which is Christ, so they can be included into my kingdom, so they can be forgiven and, and not be condemned, but come into eternal life. We live in a world that's going to perish and is perishing. And, and, and we, we get so stuck in it. We get so caught in this world and our minds get so fixed on this world and we forget that this world is just a small portion of our, our, of our eternal existence. Men and women, if we think about eternity as a rope going around the entire earth, our lifespan is just one inch of that rope. And you're going to live that entirety of humanity or the entirety of, of, of uh, eternity. And yet how you live in this inch determines what's going to happen to you for all of eternity. Our lives are much bigger than what we think. God says, tell the world, judgment is coming, but they can live forever. They can live forever. They can be forgiven. After the judgment comes, there's going to be the third creation. There was the first creation, and then there was the fall, and then there was judgment, and then there was the recreation with, with Noah. And then there's going to be another judgment, and there's going to be the third and final new creation. And it's going to be called the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the ultimate end of all of time and space and reality is the new heavens and the new earth where God is going to rebuild our earth and restore all things and we're going to live there again with each other, with God and all wickedness and all evil will be done with and only goodness and rightness and truth will remain. And let's read about it. I'm going to close up here. But it's in 2 Peter uh, 
chapter 3, and it's verse 3, starts in verse 3. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in those last days with scoffing, following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, right? Yeah, scoffers will come like they came back in Noah's day. They're going to come in this day. Oh, where, where is Jesus not coming? He ain't coming. It's been 2,000 years. He is not coming. You are a fool to think he's coming. Live for yourself. Live for this world. Live for what you can get. Jesus is not coming. Then it says this, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and, by, and through water by the word of God, Genesis 1. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, Genesis 6. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So we live in a time of God's patience. We live in the age of his grace and his patience so that everyone could hear this message of salvation and everyone could get into the ark or as many people who, is, who can. He wants none to perish. But then he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a, with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're waiting for. Everything's going to burn away, but he says there will be a new heavens and a new earth and righteousness, rightness, goodness will dwell there. What we all want and long for is righteousness and justice. It will dwell in this place. All of our sin, all of our, our flesh will be, will be done with and we will only be the new creations God has made us to be with Christ for all of eternity to live with God. So in the meantime, in the meantime, let's be like Noah. Let's be like Noah. Let's not put our eyes on this earth, but put our eyes on heaven. Let's live in trust and faith and obey Christ and obey his command and obey his call and obey his word. We may be strange by those who don't believe, but to God you are honored and blessed. And if you're in this room today and you don't know Jesus, you can just call upon the name of Jesus and he said he will save you. He will grab you and he'll pull you out of hell, of sin, of death, of the demons that have their grips on your life. He promises to pull you out and to save you. He says you do not need to be, to perish in eternity forever, but he came to save you. 
So let us be people that cry out into Jesus. Let us be people that hold on to Jesus. Let us be people that don't get caught up in the things of this world that are going to perish, but the things of eternity that live forever. Let us be people that love God's word and his work and be devoted to those things because that is what the ultimate end is. Let's pray. Lord, um, it is, a, it is a massive thing to even think about these things, even talk about these things, Lord. <clears throat> and God, I pray for faith, the faith of Noah to be in, the, in our hearts, to be in the hearts of men and women in this room, a faith that believes in God, that God is real, that God's word is true, and holds on in faith, even though we don't see all the answers right before us. And I pray, Lord, that this, the people in this congregation would, would love you and would hate the world. Not hate the people of the world, but hate the worldliness of the world. We would hate this world because it's all going to perish. And that we would love you and we would love the things of God. And we would love the the joy of God and the spirit of God and all the good things that are of God. And I pray, Lord, this church would be a purified church and a voice, a city on a hill that wouldn't be afraid to say, hey, brother, judgment's coming, but there's a savior for you too. Or, hey, sister, you're gonna be judged, but there's a savior for you too. And I pray no one in this room would be afraid to say that message. And I pray everyone in this room would be bold and confident in their faith. And I pray for those who don't know you in this room, they'd come to know you, Jesus. And they'd come to know you as a great God that saved them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.